I've titled this talk, Exchanging God's Truth for the Big Lie, Paradise Lost. The last time we were together, we studied Genesis chapter 2, in which God creates man, and finding that it is not good for the man to be alone, he creates from man, woman. A creature that was one being is now two. The author of our study, Jim Wilkins, says on page 63, Though Genesis is historical narrative and not a fairy tale, Moses is definitely setting the scene for the drama that will play out in chapter 3. We might say this is his once upon a time section of the unfolding history based on what you know will happen in chapter 3. Summarize chapter 2 in your own words and use the voice of a storyteller. And so this is what I wrote. Once upon a time, the world was right and good and full of the presence of God. Its inhabitants and creatures knew God. He walked among them and provided for them. The world was warm and safe, and there was no violence or cruelty or poverty or disease or misery. This was not to last. Tragedy was soon to befall all the world. Death and decay would enter into the world and paradise would be lost. And so we ask, how was paradise lost? Why was it lost? Are we lost to paradise forever? Today we answer these questions. An utter tragedy is about to unfold as we read this account in Genesis chapter 3. It's the ultimate tragedy, of course. It affects all people all creatures, all nature, throughout the history of the world, and it affects us personally and deeply. I can hardly bear to read it after investing in the first two chapters of Genesis, where, where we found so much beauty and life and fulfillment. As I get ready to dive into this tragic chapter, I want to put my hands up to my face and just peek out like that emoji you know, the one with the hands on the face with one little eye peeking out. I couldn't bear to read these next words unless I knew something really important, very important. That is, I know the end of the story. Yes, I confess, I read the end of novels before finishing them, especially if the beloved characters are endangered somewhere in the novel. So here is the very important thing that is a key to hold on to as we read this chapter. And that very important thing, God knew that paradise would be lost before the world was created. What? You may say, yes, scripture tells us this. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. God chose him, Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began. But now, in the last days, he has been revealed for your sake. And Revelation 13, that, uh, verse 8, And all the people who belong to this world worshipped the beast, says. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made.
In 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through and 10, God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because it was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. What's the good news? It's the gospel. God knew. He knew before he even created the world and the first humans that Jesus would one day die to rescue us from Satan. God had this plan in place to rescue man, humankind. So Genesis 3.1 tells us that the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that God has made. Why was he the shrewdest? Well, listen to the conversation between the serpent and the woman, and there you'll get some clues. One day, the scripture says, he, meaning the serpent, asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. Ah, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, how interesting this conversation is. The serpent must not have seemed very threatening to the woman at all. It, it seems like the serpent, serpent is just chatting her up. You know, nothing to see here really, just shooting the breeze and like just looking at the round and saying, hmm, did God really say? But the question, the way the question is phrased, it says so much more because it's a question that has an agenda. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, what did God really say? Let's check back to Genesis 2 where God commissions Adam. In verse 15, he says, God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So the woman's answer isn't quite right when she replies and says, of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Oh, that's right. One of the trees in the middle of the garden is really what it says. But also, she adds this, you can't even touch it, because if you do, you will die. So, what detail had she added here? She had added that she can't even touch it, 
or she will die. So God didn't say that she couldn't touch it. That she, he, he just said, don't eat the fruit from that one tree. And the snake succeeded in getting her to question God's command and change it even. Then they diminish the truth when, when the serpent says God is a liar, essentially, when he says, he implies that, when he says that she won't die if she eats. He refutes the truth that God has said and the warning that he's given. It won't be so bad. It surely won't be as bad as that. As a matter of fact, there's something very good that he's trying to keep from you. It's like, it reminds me of when I, the time when my son was three and we had a fireplace with a glass guard. So we warned our son not to touch the glass when there was a fire inside. And then one evening I heard giggling and I see him running up to the fireplace guard. There was a fire in it, but before I could stop him, yep, he wailed because he burned his hand and it was it was terrible. It was terrible hearing his cry. But he did the one thing. He could have busied himself playing with his toys, but no. He did the one thing that would harm him that mommy told him not to do. The snake's agenda? Get the woman to do the one thing. So he maligns God's character, and he says that God lied to her. She won't really die. Um, And then he contradicts the truth. No, you won't really die. Instead... Something else will happen. Something good that God wants to keep from you. The serpent implies that God has deceived her. That God has hidden the truth from her. You won't die, the serpent replies. And here the snake undermines God's authority in her eyes. He attributes God to God a nefarious intent. He says that God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. He contradicts the truth that God has given in order to protect her, and now he goes one step further and accuses God of deceiving her by withholding something good and desirable from her. He implies that God doesn't want her to be like him, that God doesn't want her to be like God. So what part of this statement do you think stuck in her head? You will be like God. And she wants to be like God. So who is this serpent? He's accused God of being a liar and he's accused God of of being a deceiver. So who in this scripture is described as being a liar and a deceiver? John 8.44 says this, For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies.
Revelation 12.9 says this, The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. The serpent has revealed himself as Satan, the enemy of our souls. What's so ironic is that Satan has attributed to God Satan's very own character. He's accused God of being the liar and the deceiver. Well, this is some of Satan's backstory. The one we now call Satan, a name which means adversary or enemy, was once called Lucifer, which means light. And this is what Ezekiel 28, 13, starting at verse 13, had to say about him or has to say about him. It says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, pale green peridot, white stone, moonstone, blue-green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I adorned and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence, and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire, because your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty, and your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. And in Isaiah fourteen twelve, we read about him. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods, far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the Most High. So you see, this is no snake that the woman is talking with. This is a very powerful creature, one who rebelled against God, who tried and failed to usurp God. So he began this conversation with an agenda in mind to engage God's most marvelous creation made in God's very image in the same rebellion and corruption desire to usurp God, to be like God. He employed a strategy. One, question. Question what God said. Did he really say? Two, doubt. Mix the truth with a lie. Any tree in the garden? You're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden? Three, disbelief. You will not die. God lied. 
You will not die for distrust. God has deceived you. He's kept something really good from you. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. He can't be trusted, but I can. Believe me. Put your trust in me. And unfortunately, his strategy worked. Verse 6 of Genesis 3. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and it, the fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their weakness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. And I was afraid because I was naked. So, the woman, her response, she looked, she wanted, and so she ate. But she wanted to share, you know, like we do. But first, before I was sent, I was going to tell you this little joke that I heard about this. She saw, she looked, she wanted, and so she ate. And it reminded me of a, a joke I heard about um, a woman who was going shopping, because this sounds like shopping to me. <laughs> Uh, seeing, looking, wanting, and so we buy. And so um, the woman, the husband, before um, the his wife goes out shopping, he says to her, "Now, um, now, be sure that you know you don't you know what our our uh, budget is, and you know we don't have any money. So you can go window shopping. That's fine, just like you said. But be sure you don't buy anything." So. So she does go, and of course, uh, she does see a dress that looks really good on her, so she buys it. She she sees the dress, she looks in the windows, or she looks in the windows, She and she wants the dress, she tries it on. And so when she's talking to her husband about it, he says, well, didn't you just say, get thee behind me, Satan? And she says, yes, I did. I told Satan to get behind me, and he did, and he told me it looked good from behind, too. So I bought the dress. Uh, well, anyway, uh, the woman, she wants to spread the love like we all do. We become the gift that keeps on giving. And who did she give it to? To her husband. You see, he was with her. I know a lot of people say that he wasn't there, but he was there. He heard everything that was said. He could have interrupted any of this, but he didn't. And instead, her husband, instead of saying, no, thank you, he uh, takes it and eats it because it sounded plausible to him, too. They, too, are, they are two cre who are creatures who began as one after all, and they're united in this, too. And as the snake had said, their eyes were opened in shame. And as the snake said, then once they ate, their eyes were opened and shame descended upon them. 
and they were frightened by it. The first of many things, the first lie, the first fear. But who do they fear now? They fear God because of the shame. Their shame will find them out. So they hid and they hide from the one who loves them, who created them, who has their best intentions at heart, and as we know, who has a plan to restore and rescue them, a plan that was in place. So they play the blame game. And several things happen rather quickly. God questions the man and the woman to get them to take ownership. But they play the blame game first. The man begins the game. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, yes, I did. No, he didn't do that. He springboards off the woman. And who does he blame? He says, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. It was the woman you gave me. That's right. He blames God. Of course he does. And then the Lord God asks the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate. And the woman blames the serpent. But notice what happens next. You see, God doesn't ask the serpent what happened. He knows who the serpent is. He doesn't give the serpent a voice because the serpent's already been judged by God. The serpent is told about the effects of the curse that has fallen on them all and how it will manifest. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, um, Sorry, I've got my pages out of order here, y'all. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the animal, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the woman said, and and to the man he said, and since... You listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. And though you will eat of its grains um, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return." And now there's so much sorrow, so much regret. Gone is the joyful relationship between the man and the woman. That has died. And now they compete with each other for control in their relationship. The tug of war ensues and defines their interactions. The unity that they shared is no more. Doubt, disbelief, and distrust That disease has infected them both. Sin, the sin disease, S-I-N. No more joyful work. 
Now it's toil and pain. No more joyful, easy childbearing. Pain marks that event, and the curse descends like a shroud that covers the earth. Paradise indeed is lost. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and Eve. So here we have the first animal sacrifice, the first shedding of an animal's blood to cover the shame and the sin, but also an indication of the hope of redemption to come. Where do we find that? Well, in these words, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. So what if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they'll live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. I know, mighty cherubim, cute little babies with their uh, flaming swords. Well, perhaps cherubim aren't the cute little chubby babies with wings like they are on the Christmas cards. Huh, no, adorable cherubim, you know, but they're protectors. They keep the man and the woman out so they can't eat the fruit from the tree of life and be trapped in death and decay with no hope of redemption. Talk about a zombie apocalypse. So God, in his consistent mercy, separates them from that possibility and gives them the hope of a future redemption. So people long for the garden. On August 15, 1969, on the dairy farm in Bethel, New York, a three-day music festival began, and it was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music. An Aquarian Exposition. For the half million people who gathered on the 601-acre farm, that phrase meant something. It indicated the age of Aquarius, the new age that held promise. It promised a dominant worldview in which the individual is allowed their freedom to actualize as an independently liberated being, yet still participate in group life in the spirit of altruism and humanitarianism. And Joni Mitchell wrote and recorded a song titled Woodstock, which chronicles that event. Her song embodies this Aquarian worldview held by these one-time young people who are now our politicians and teachers and parents and grandparents of this current generation. And this is what her words said. The lyrics, well, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road and I asked him, tell me, where are you going? This, he told me, said, I'm going down to Yasker's farm to join a rock and roll band to get got to get back to the land and set my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. The garden. Try though we might, we cannot get ourselves back to the garden. The garden. It holds so much promise and hope. Humanity longs for it even now. 
It represents to us security, peace, and justice. The garden where God and man walked together and man was clothed. He was clothed with God's righteousness and holiness and through deception, temptation, and sin, he was stripped naked by God. So God mercifully cast him out of the garden and placed a guard at the entrance so that man would not eat of the tree of life and be enslaved by death and decay forever. And in this way, God set the stage for the hope of redemption and restoration, and he began to enact his great rescue mission. Adam and Eve traded the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for the big lie, and this exchange has consequences. Verse 29 of Romans 1. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Deception. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful, and they invent new ways of sinning and disobey their parents, and they refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. However, even as we grieve this exchange and this great loss, we cling to hope. Remember the very important thing we started today's talk with? Well, we end with it too. We said God knew. God knew before he even created the world that the first and the first humans that Jesus would one day die to rescue us from Satan, that he had this plan in place. The tragedy began with a woman, Eve. And I asked Becky to put up this picture so you could see that the tragedy is transformed through a woman, Mary, who bears uh, our Savior, Jesus. She's the mother of Jesus, the serpent crusher. What a grace and a mercy is given to Eve to know that her descendant, Mary, will bear the greatest gift we've all ever been given, Jesus, the serpent crusher. And this terrible narrative begins with a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it also ends with a tree the cross of Christ, where the tragedy goes to die and be transformed into new life. Let's pray. Father God, what a gift you have given. What a redemption you have given to us. You've given us the serpent crusher, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Please work through us as the light of the world, as the lanterns that carry the light, help us to take this message out to friends and neighbors and family who need this truth to exchange back for the big lie that they are believing in and investing in now. To exchange it back, the big lie for the truth that redemption has come and that the light of the world is here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.